0: Um, everybody, I'm Jeff Smith, bass player, soul shaker of Star and Maisie, and we're here in my home, sitting at my tiki bar in Memphis, Tennessee. So I hope you enjoy listening to me talk.
1: <laughs> I had you on the telephone, said you won't be coming home. Heard you had to leave the state, said you won't be back someday. Well, now I can't wait. No, I think you should stay I know you're here to leave the state Now you're coming back someday
0: Thank you so much for taking the time, man. Yeah, thanks, Alan. So. It's my pleasure. I'm glad we found to be able to make it work. Yeah, man. So it's been in the making for a little over a month, man. Yeah, and, and the holidays and just everything else in between, man. It just finally worked. New year. Now we're doing this. perfect. Good way to, stay, to start the year off. That's what I was going to say, man. It's a great start. Yeah. So, man, just to uh,
2: get to know a little bit more about you, um, early beginnings, man, as a child, like, uh, was music kind of always there, or how did you get introduced to it?
0: Well, uh, music was always a part of my life. Um, mostly, you know, my father and my mother were very musically inclined, not so much instrument-wise. or uh, It was more just they were really big music lovers. Both my grandmothers, um, my mom, my mother's mom and my dad's mom, were classically trained pianists, and it kind of skipped a generation. Mm-hmm. Um, my father is probably the biggest music lover I've ever known. He his collection of music is outstanding. He is the sole reason why I have such an eclectic palate when it comes to music. As far as like the love of music, and he's a, mm-hmm. you know, grew up in the you know in the '60s and '70s, so he really got into, you know, Motown and soul, and you know he's from New York, and, you know, was became a big Deadhead, you know, and that was like, wow. became he, he used to hitchhike around the country and go see the Dead, you know, and was. <laughs> just obsessed with them. And of course the seventies, young, you did you know, you had it's like everything is a lot more free then. Right. And then in the eighties he moved down to New York or from New York to Memphis, take care of my great grandmother, who passed. And met my mother, who was from San Diego, both met in here in Memphis. So what are the odds? Yeah, I know, right? But my all my most of my grandparents are from Memphis, so they moved away, then they came back. So my father, you know, you know, during the seventies, eighties and nineties, there was so much you know, great music that, you know, I was exposed to, you know, for everything from Led Zeppelin to Queen to Aerosmith to, you know, Motown classics. And eventually I'd find out about Stax. And my mother was a, a singer and was in the theater growing up and, you know, she had the same similar taste. So as far as like, you know, a musically inclined instrument wise, it didn't really start, you know, coming into effect until like i was like you know probably like eight or nine yeah. um i was always drawn to drums i always wanted to be a drummer yeah uh i just you know and my mother at one point growing up she dated a drummer and it was like he was always promising me that he'd you know get a drum kit for you. me and and, yeah, and teach me and you know back then you know drum sets or like back then it's not like i'm you know a hundred thousand years old in the 90s growing up <laughs> uh drum sets, were. it seemed like they weren't as easily obtainable as they are now. Same with all music equipment. It's like, you know, a drum set would have cost like two grand. Now you can get a good drum set for like a few hundred bucks. Right. So there was that uh, deciding factor. It was like it was too expensive. they, They took up a lot of room. And also, the big thing was it didn't have a volume knob. And, you know, acoustic drums are loud. And so that skipped over me. I knew, I think I learned how to... Twirl sticks. That's about as cl- close as it got for me beca- being a drummer that young. Yeah, I eventually taught myself how to play drums, which I can still I can do okay. But how difficult was that, man? To not get a drum set, it was really hard. It was, <laughs> that's all I wanted to do. It's like I mean, I remember putting. I remember at one point it was in. I was in elementary school, and Josh and I went to the same elementary school, Keystone Elementary in North Memphis. And it was at the time it was like a brand new school. It was an optional school, and their music department was ran by this woman i'm not lying her name her legit god-given name was miss medley and she was a very eccentric very you know just an eccentric musical person like would have all these instruments from all around the world and like she traveled all around the world to bring these instruments to her classroom and it was like xylophones as far as you can see and like all these different hand drums I mean it was was very impressive yeah Yeah. and like as a kid you know growing up in Raleigh and Millington and and Midtown and like Josh and I we weren't like you know we were middle class poor and like you know we like were so drawn to this like music element of our elementary school and like I remember putting together like I was I was doing something I don't remember I think it might have been fifth grade or sixth grade putting together pieces of drums to put together like a drum kit yeah, like, I would, yeah makeshift drum kit like it would be like a bass drum that wasn't a kick drum and like conga drums and like I would try to play them when like you know when I was like staying after school like helping her do stuff the teacher but eventually she started uh, the music teacher at our elementary school started teaching uh, guitar classes and so uh, my father and my mother encouraged me to do that And I had this old guitar that my, it was my grandmother's, uh, it was, it was, the brand name was Western Acoustic. It was like a nylon acoustic knockoff guitar. I still wish I had it. I have no idea what happened to it. Oh, I know what happened to it. I became a teenager and I suck. So that's what happened to the guitar. (laughs) So with, with that being said, when, when they started teaching guitar there, I started, I joined and started learning how to play guitar. And... I, you know, really got into it, and the acoustic guitar that I had, that was my grandmother's, and this is before I knew anything about, like, how to properly set up an acoustic guitar or anybody. This is like, 95, 96. Yeah. And so, the, I'm sure the action on the neck was, like, probably, like, an inch off the board, and it's, like, you know, basically playing telephone wires. But I, I really felt, started falling in love with it, and... At some point, it kind of tapered off. I think after the sixth grade, I stopped playing a musical instrument. And then, you know, because you're getting into middle school, and all you want to do is like be cool, know, be cool, chase girls. Yeah. And like, you know, and then I went. I started. Josh and I went to the same middle school, which was Craigmont, and it was like an inner city school in the middle of Raleigh, and it was like it was pretty rough. Yeah. And all you know, so that and at that point, like middle school, I was I started getting into to, like um, you know, in the '90s, growing up, up until this point, I was mostly listening to like you know '90s pop and rock, and grunge. You know, like I really got into Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, oh, yeah. and Nirvana, of course, and a bunch of other bands. And then I, when I became got in middle school, I really got into, funny enough, like '90s R and B. Like I was like obsessed with Boys the Men, Drew Hill, One Twelve, Blackstreet. I mean, I was just, that's all I wanted to listen to. And that was, like, the thing people were listening to at that point. And uh, I just was obsessed with it. Yeah. All the harmonies, uh, Brian McKnight, you know, I was just, like, just in love with this stuff. Um, And it's funny, because, like, Josh and I didn't know each other in elementary school. We just, he was, like, the the cool, poor kid, and I was, like, the weird middle-class kid. And, like, we just (laughs) never, we didn't run in the same circles. Yeah. So it wasn't until middle school. I remember this in eighth grade, middle school. We sh- we had the same art class, and uh, Mr. K- what was his name? Started Mr. K. We called him Mr. K. And Josh and I were like, "Hey, you went to Keystone?" And we're like, "Yeah." And you went to Keystone. And it was like, "Cool, let's talk, let's hang out." And uh, we started, you know, hitting it off. And yeah. I remember Josh had this. <coughs> he had a, a Sony Discman, and he had Corn's uh, record, "Follow the Leader." and i've never heard of the band corn before and then we were listening to it like dual headphones in our art class mr k's class and my whole world changed i was like who is this band like i wanted i mean it was like you know hindsight is like i'm glad i listened to it but obviously it was like you know i can admit it now um so i'd like listen to this band i was like obsessed with it then i started like Going down the rabbit hole of like you know new metal you know like Corn Limp Bizkit, System mm-hmm. of a Down Godsmack Creed unfortunately um, a bunch of other you know new metal bands like Papa Roach Disturbed all that stuff so like right. it was like super popular in the late nineties early two thousands extremely and unpopular now extremely some of, un- some of them like yes you go
2: back and listen to it yeah. you're like really I did that
0: yeah although but at that time it was sure. I will say two Come bands that hold up still are Lincoln Park and System of a Down, and I am not ashamed to say that Lincoln Park's first record, Hybrid Theory, will I will still rock that record and blare it in my truck as loud as it can go. Same so as I heard one song off of it on the uh, playlist on the way up here. There you go, man. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a solid record. Yeah. I uh, side note, I remember Josh and I when we were you know became you know started becoming friends. We were at the Raleigh Springs Mall, and this is just a great just example of guerrilla street team marketing. We were in the Raleigh Springs Mall. We were 14 years old. We were like in the throes of like our new metal love of music. Yeah. And there was this, it was a street team. I was walking around the mall and they handed us this cassette. It was a white cassette tape and it was a band called Lincoln Park. Never heard of them. They were like, this, you know, a big band from, I think they were from Jacksonville, Florida. And there's like, you know, so you guys should listen to us. There's a new band coming out. Uh, the new record drops in like a month. We're like, okay, cool. It was like, we'll go listen to it. We were driving, you know, I think we were driving home in his brother's Camaro or something. We had that cassette and it was uh, One Step Closer and With You was the B-side. We wore, we played that tape so much that the tape wore out. I mean, it just died. And then what's crazy is like when that record came out after, you know, those people in, in all those said cities did that, that record like went double platinum within like, a week or two of it being mm-hmm. out I mean it was just it just skyrocketed
2: I found Linkin Park at the end of that album right before Meteora was coming out mm-hmm. and like you know I got Hybrid Theory yeah, and then turned around a month later and got Meteora and Yeah, I like I thought I would found
0: like the greatest thing that I could. know
2: it was groundbreaking yeah it was for what they were doing at that time it was so course. far ahead
0: of itself yes absolutely so I like we latched on to that and we didn't let go but back to like uh what I was saying with, like, you know, Josh is like, once we, you know, started finding out about all this music, then I started, Josh and I started hanging out and becoming really good friends, and eventually, you know, been best friends for over 20 years now. But Josh, I got, I latched on to his family a lot. You know, I was uh-huh. growing up 14, 15. My parents were separated, were, have been since I was six. So, you know, I live with my dad. My sister lived with my mom. My dad was working all the time, so I was like, I wanted to, you know, you know, when I lashed on the Josh family, because they were like a family that I, you know, a, a complete family that I basically latched on to. Right. And, you know, he had an an older brother and an older sister. As Danny was his brother, uh, Bonnie was his sister. And, like, you know, they were like these cool older siblings. Because I, w- I had a younger sister. I never had an older siblings. So I, like, just like, looked up to them. And Josh's brother was in this cover band. They were called Cloud Nine. I'm sure Josh probably told you about yeah. them. And, you know, we got. You know, we'd go to all their shows. They'd, like, you know, play the grand opening of the Crystals in Covington, Tennessee, or something like that. Or, like, do, like, shows at the High Point Pinch downtown where it's no longer there. Or, you know, the Hard Rock Cafe in Memphis, and we thought that was, like, the height. Or at the New Daisy Theater. Yeah. And we are just, you know, 14, just so, just, like, just taking it all in. It's like we wanted to be these people, you know. We started, you know, and then I was, you know, in love with Josh's... Older sister, of course, because that's what you do when you're, you know, and your best friends, you know, older sisters like A gorgeous, B is, you know, super cool and just doesn't, you know, give a shit basically. Um, so anyways, Josh and I started, you know, like at this point, I had not touched a guitar or an instrument. He was uh, about to in play a, bass though. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so when Josh and I were going to Craigmont, uh, we became friends with these two other guys. Uh, it was Richie Wolf and Chris Harrison. And they were guitar players, and you know we were, went to middle school with them. I ended up, you know, we ended up knowing them for a very long time after high school. Um, unfortunately, not anymore. But they were guitar players, and they were very, very good guitar players. And they were neighbors; they lived right next to each other in Raleigh. And you know, Josh and I would always go and hang out with them because we, and we just latched onto each other. Uh, and they were just extremely talented, talented, talented guitar players. And Josh was, you know, starting to let this creative side of him start coming out, you know, 14, 15 years old. And we formed our, you know, our first band, and it was called Cycled, what a stupid name. Um, And (laughs) we had our, uh, and we got a, you know, and it's funny because like, you know, and Josh was starting to play guitar too, very, uh, just, you know, little bit by little bit. And I was like, you know, and I had played guitar previous, you know, about a few years before with, you know, acoustic guitar, and I was like, well, you know, well, these, you know, Richie and Chris are playing guitar, well, I guess, you know, I'll try bass, you know, Um, I was obsessed with, like, you know, Fieldy from Corn, you know, that slap bass style that he did, which, you know, and everyone wanted to tune down to A, and I was like, well, cool. I'll do this. And another deciding factor for me with bass was Josh's sister Bonnie thought bass players were hot, and yeah. you know, I know that of course, story. Yeah, man. that never panned out. So, so anyways, so I remember like you know we started getting this band formed. We're fourteen years old, and Josh's brother was like you know was going. He's like, if you guys can get a band together, you guys can open up for us at you know one of our gigs. Yeah. We're like, oh my god, that would just be the you know incredible. So I remember I remember my father uh there was a pawn shop still there it's off of uh it's in raleigh off of what is it um austin p uh it's like right when you go over uh, i-40 if you like go to old austin p rose this old like strip mall and it has this pawn shop there and i remember we got he, he got me a galveston five string bass and it was like purple it was the ugliest bass in the world but it was five string cuz that's what i wanted cuz you yeah. didn't have that low b you can turn it down tune it down to you know c sharp you know b or a It's like like what all those bands were doing yeah so and then like Richie and chris had like the seven string guitars were like we're going to be the next corn right so we started you know and so i got a bass and we had a a friend of ours uh, his name was dewan richardson and he was a drummer um, and he joined our band so we were this like five piece and josh was the lead singer so it was like how corn's setup was You had drums two guitars bass vocal and you know we finally had this band we had you know we practiced a little bit you know we weren't really good at all we had i think we had like a six song set mm-hmm. we had two originals that we didn't know how to play but we did them anyways i think one song was called circles maybe if i can remember something like that i forgot what the other one was called and then we played like four covers it was like two Deftones songs and two uh, uh, Seven Dust songs. We were obsessed with the band Seven Dust and Deftones. Yeah. And those bad. records still hold up. And, you know, a few of them. So I remember, yeah, you know... White Pony. Oh, yeah, God. Don't give me a start about White Pony. Yeah, or uh, uh, Home by Seven Dust. So anyways, um, you know, this started happening we are like, in the throes of, like, our new metal phase. Like, we had this band. We were, like, 15 years old. We were opening up for Cloud Nine at, you know, the Ruffin Theater or at the High Point Pinch or Hard Rock Cafe. And we were, you know, all of our friends would come out and see us. Yeah. Uh, But we weren't really that good, you know. But we were just jumping around the stage, you know, spiking our hair, you know, know, putting black gel in it. Just trying to look the part. Yeah. And this is through, you know, like, 8th, 9th, 10th grade. And then it started... You know, eventually, you know, Josh went to another school, and it's the band dis- disbanded. Yeah, and you know, I started still, you know, was playing bass pretty regularly, trying to teach myself how to, you know, you know do stuff. But there wasn't no other musical project that came out of that band at that time. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until like probably eleventh grade, twelfth grade, we started. You know, we're still dabbling in music a little bit, but not too much. We we're just too busy wanting to get high all the time and get screwed up and we were really into the band Coheed and Cambria which is uh, which is a really big influence on us as far as like vocals go and like melodies and you know we started going into an emo phase you know that summer yeah and we did uh, you know we were into Thursday and you know Glassjaw and all those bands but mostly we were all about just getting you know super high and messed up all the time and so like music was always like you know a second factor um it, but you know once we got out of high school that's when you know like I went to I tried to go to college for you know tried to go to college and you know, I was trying to major in music didn't work out I was you know and I graduated and went to Lambeth University and just did just, just did all music yeah it's like well that you know that's all like sight singing, music theory, music composition, music history, oh, yeah. guitar classes. It's like this is stuff I didn't had no idea. You know, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, what the circle of fifths were. I didn't know anything. It was like reading Greek, and it's like I, and that. And I couldn't afford to be there, even though I got accepted to the school. It's like I finally, it just dropped out yeah. because I couldn't afford it. And Josh and I, you know, so like in high school, you know, it just didn't really do a whole lot of th- a lot of stuff musically after our first band. And Josh was dating uh, in high school, dating a a girl, her name was Taylor Paveer, and I'm sure he told, you know, about this, and her father was a very prominent recording engineer and producer from Nashville, moved here, helped build the studio Young Avenue Sound, and, you know, and of course, you know, Josh and I were best friends, and of course, you know, Taylor and I got very close, and, and then I met Willie Paveer. And at that time, Josh, he was helping, like, Josh open up his creative side of songwriting. You know, 18 years old, we are both just working jobs and not, you know, doing anything. So we started getting involved in this type of, you know, this whole unexplored area of music, which was songwriting. So are we in the Starbucks Starbucks Mall yet? We're, We're getting there. We're really close yeah um, and you know this is still pre-Ryan so this is like 2003 I just got out of college and I got kicked out of the house because I wasn't going to college so I got a job uh, working on forklift batteries because you know I was 18 and my uncle owned the company so it was an easy transition yeah anyways so I freed up a lot of time to like start like getting a little bit more serious about music because like then you know we started getting really obsessed with like going back to our roots as far as like you know our love for music we started going back to the Beatles Van Morrison uh, Led Zeppelin like you know we started like studying the mess out of the Beatles like we that was like where we were as far as songwriting went and all of that we just like it was like you know music college was just studying the Beatles Yeah, and that's what we did and you know Josh started really opening up as a songwriter and then started just then the floodgates opened and he started just writing started writing all these original ideas and when that happened i was like you know well i want to you know collaborate and you know so i started writing bass to his ideas and started adding a, a harmony and we started structuring songs together with the help of willie and ourselves and just being you know openly creative that way and that was like the super infancy stages of us josh and i starting what would eventually become star and my C. right So, yeah. And then after that, so this was around 2003, 2004. So basically, we just, you know, were woodshedding all of this stuff, like these new songs, like She's on Fire Late at Night, I Think So, Nog Champa, all of these really cool ideas that Josh had. And I would, you know, it was just guitar, acoustic guitar, or no, it was electric guitar, because he bought an Epiphone Explorer, because that makes sense. It was like, you know, that was like a James Hetfield electric guitar he had, you know, but I mean, he loved it. And, you know, Josh was always drawn to the, the, the unique and odd, you know, aspect of, Shape like, of yeah you know, shapes of, you know, of that. And at that time I was like playing Ibanez basses cause I was obsessed with Ibanez still and they were, you know, they were cheap. Um, and at that point I ditched the five string and went back to four string cause I just started figuring I was like, if you can do everything on, You can do everything on a four string you can on a five string, basically. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't need that low B tuning. So that, you know, so it just started off with him and I for the first, about, you know, year. And then once we had these ideas, I remember um, Josh's brother's band, Cloud Nine, had a drummer in it. His name was Jerry Meadows. I'm sure Josh had talked about him in his version of this. And Jerry was a very young drummer, prodigy. Mm -hmm. And he was an incredible drummer. And I remember, he, you know, he was he was a little bit younger than us, so he was really young in the Cloud Nine band, like he was underage basically. Um, and I remember he was starting other projects uh, with some other people, and we went to Jerry. It was like, "Hey, listen to these songs that you know we came up with." Yeah. And Jerry, you know, this is you know we're all all of us were living in Millington, Atoka, Mumford, and Covington, and Jerry was just like he dropped he quit the project he was in that night he's like I'm sorry I cannot do this I, and he was like obsessed with our, our little songs that we had crump, come up with and then it became this three piece and it and I remember like for that entire year or two all we did I mean I remember I would drive from you know I was working in a warehouse like you know driving a work truck around warehouses in southeast Memphis and all around Memphis and Jackson Tennessee and I would get done with work and Josh and I would drive from you know, down Lamar. uh, that, that place. Yeah. I mean like all of that stuff down, way down a little I would used to go to all those warehouses.
2: Yeah.
0: So after like doing that all day, I would get in my truck and go pick up Josh. And, uh, this, cause I think we were, yeah, we just got started, uh, living in midtown. And like we were 18, just living in a midtown, this really crappy, but cool apartment it had like all these secret, and uh, that's my girlfriend, Mary. Um, had all these secret you know, like doors and compartments. It was a cool apartment, but it was a just a just a complete shit show. It was like haunted. It was legit haunted, and it had a rat problem. So it wasn't like you know. But you're 18. You live in Midtown. Who cares? Yeah. All you're doing is swimming pot the dream, all day. Right? Yeah, living the dream. Um, so with that being said, you know we would drive from Midtown to Covington, Tennessee, a 45 minute drive every single night. Every night go out there and practice at you know jerry as jerry's parents house had this little music room set up in the back and we had a little crappy pa with two microphones and uh josh had his guitar i'm out my bass Sam jerry had his drums and we would just like i said woodshed these songs until we'd play them to death and we were writing and we were having the time of our lives i mean we were just so hungry for this thing that we were creating and it just started snowballing and snowballing and eventually once we got you know these songs like the way we wanted them we showed them to Willie Prevere and the newly christened Young Avenue Sound over on Young right here, over here Midtown which is still an operating studio and he was just he loved them he was like let's get in here and, and cut some of these songs and we've never been in a recording studio before maybe Jerry had with his other band but Josh and I never have yeah. so this is all new territory yeah, very surreal. scared to death and he had what was called the humility or uh, sorry, it's like uh, uh, Willie had this saying. It's called the humilitron, which is like getting in front of a microphone and like being super vulnerable for whatever happens. And so he called it the humilitron, like going through that machine. Yeah. So like you know, we did that for you know you know we cut a few songs at Young Avenue Sound, and I still have those recordings somewhere. And I mean they were raw, they they sounded good, um, they were tight, and it, it was just an example of at that time, like how hard we were working on those songs. I mean, they were all, they were great ideas, but they were super rough, like super drives, just guitar, bass, drums, two vocals. So, and that was around 2005, 2004 when we did that. And then, you know, Josh had, you know, continually started writing more and more and more songs and coming up with more ideas. And, um, eventually, uh, at this point, like 2005, I remember I moved to a, an apartment complex over here, Poplar and, McCle- Poplar and Hawthorne. It's called the Royal Arms. It was this beautiful, like, little... We'd moved out of our shithole, and <laughs> Josh had gotten an apartment uh, with his girlfriend, Taylor, and I've gotten my own at this place called Royal Arms. it's like, this 24-unit, like... The apartment complex and it's still there it's not as cool as it used to be it's like it had this be- beautiful courtyard with trees all in it yeah. and like everyone had lights everywhere It's like this super charming real boutique looking like apartment complex It's like the dream place to live when you're 18 or 19 years old and the people that lived in there a lot of them were musicians and one of them happened to be a guy by the name of Mick Walker he had a band called Eldor- Eldorado and the Ruckus and he worked at Sun Studio as a tour guide unbeknownst um, to me at the time and I moved into my own place I was 19, maybe 20 yeah, 18, 19 or 20 and uh, we got introduced that way and he was like we had not played like a legit local show at this point this is like yeah, 2004, 2005 and we're like well, he said well, you can open I'm doing like a residency at the High Tone Cafe over here on Poplar the original uh, High Tone.'" It's like, why don't you guys open up for us a few nights? You know, of those of that month. And he was like, it was like a Monday night. Yeah. We're like, absolutely, we'd love to. Because the High Tone was like such an iconic place to play in Midtown uh, back then. It still is to some degree, um, but the original one had a lot of charm, and it was like, you know, a lot of people played there. Yep. So I remember playing there uh, with, you know, just this, this, our three piece. We opened up with like our little four or five song set and. People were really digging it and really liking what we were doing, and you know, the elder and the ruckus kept inviting us back to open up for them, and it just kept, you know, getting a little bit bigger. And we weren't like building a local scene just yet, yeah. Uh, it, but people were starting to find out about this group, and this is before the Star and name came about. This is probably just just shy of when that incident happened. So we were I think where the band was called like Nash Family Reunion or some stupid like that. I had like a had a, a shirt from a salvation from a, like a thrift store and it said, you know, Nash Family Reunion. It was like a, a family reunion t-shirt. Josh was like let's call the band that. I'm like, fine, whatever. And then and then that fateful night when when you know Josh told you about how the Star Micey name came about, yeah. the star. And so I remember him telling me that story after it happened and I thought it's like this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's like I'm not calling my band that. Well first, but before he told me the story, he's like, I got a name. He said Star and my I was like, dude, that's stupid. What is that? And then he told me the story behind all of it. And I was like, Okay. Damn it. Okay, well I guess we're gonna have to it's like this is such a great story and this is gonna be a great story to tell people. So absolutely. Bands called Star and Micey. So, you know, at this point Jerry, our drummer, was still with us, 2005 to, I think around 2006, like, we're, st- we're still playing some shows, uh, we had just started, uh, I don't think we've gotten into Neil's music room yet at this point, uh, we were playing the high tone pre- pretty regularly, and, you know, having a blast doing that, and then at some point in the 2005, 2006 vein, Jerry, our drummer, had quit, he, he decided to quit Star of and go and join an new metal band and go on the road and be a you know big time drummer man yeah and so he left us high and dry without a drummer and which was you know pretty devastating and i got took that really hard and josh did to some degree i'm a little bit more emotional uh, and i show it a lot more than than josh does uh so i was like just live it and um when that happened josh and i continued to do the Star thing for a little bit like just doing like acoustic gigs at Otherland's coffee shop or like at the high tone and it just it wasn't working and uh, Josh had uh, started dating a a new girl her name was Samantha at this point it was like 2006 and you know him and Taylor had a really bad falling out and I was like still really really close friends with Taylor and it was like a huge just everything kind of fell apart so Josh started dating another this other girl, Sam, who ended up becoming a, a, you know, was an amazing person. Still is a very pivotal part of you know helping Star Micey get to a, a very far point. Uh huh. Um. So when this all happened, it was like Josh was wanting to kind of take a break of you know, Star Micey thing, and I was like, "That's fine." And I at that point I had uh, we became friends with a really awesome local band called Chess Club. This really awesome power pop, like rock band, synth rock band. These yeah. guys were like legit, had been around the scene for a while, and they had a huge following. And uh, they were, you know, we were like, we opened up for them a lot, and we were obsessed with them. They're so cool. Like, all their songs were hip, and like, they matched Staromyces aesthetic because the songs were super poppy and catchy, except they were louder and yeah. a lot more seasoned. And it just so happened that when Josh and I decided to take, you know, retire Star and Micey for a moment, their bass player had, uh, Chess Club's bass player had left. And now they needed a new bass player. And I was like, I was like 22, 23. And I was like, <laughs> this I guy. would be more than happy. I think I was 22, yeah. yeah. To, to play bass in this, like, and these guys had 10 years on me. So they were yeah. like in their 30s at the time. And... So I joined chess club for about a year and a half, two years, and like went on the road with them. I recorded with them, and like I basically got my chops as a as, a, as far as a band goes with these guys. Like they were like no bullshit, like full on, you, know, you know, rock and roll band, and they were so talented, so mm-hmm. good. I mean, they still are. And and then Josh, you know, started. You know, he you know, basically retreated into his bedroom and started writing all these really delicate beautiful you know folk songs like with a banjo a three-string banjo and an acoustic guitar and started coming up with all these really cool song ideas and basically recording up to garage band with a snowball microphone yeah and you know josh and i were still best friends I mean, we would hang out like almost every other night you know but i was doing my own thing with chess club he was doing his own thing at home yeah jerry was out of the picture. And this went on for Until around 2008 And around 2008 That's when Josh Decided to You know Go to an open mic night At Neil's Music Room Which Josh told You about him And Nick And That fateful night Where Josh Almost decided to not Go up there That night And Samantha the pool? Was the one that Basically coaxed Josh Into doing that And you know, Go up there You'll feel better Once you do it mm-hmm. Josh did And he met the one and only Nicholas Redman (laughs) at uh, Neal's Music Room. And this is when they were doing the Bar Stars thing up there. And this is like, you know, the Neal's Music Room on Madison and McLean was like, that was our spot, man. Everybody hung out there. And it was like, it was such a cool place to be because like the bar part of Neal's was like, just it was awful It was like harpos like in, in north memphis it was gross yeah but the music room was run by a gentleman by the name of richard butler he was this incredible sound guy and he, he still is he has like this magnificent magnificent head of silver hair he's like the like hippie version of gandalf All you know right. and he's just he's he's like you know he's and he kind of talks like eeyore's like hey guys it's so good to see you you know it's just like this deep drawn out like you can go to sleep to his voice and um he he was very he I mean, he fell in love with us and we fell in love with him but beside the point once Josh did that you know Nick and him and Nick got together and like, it's like Nick was like dude you know, send me some of your stuff and that's when Josh scribbled his landline telephone number on that CD and gave it to Nick and it took like Nick like Three or four weeks to finally get a hold of Josh because Josh's roommate at the time was a real piece of garbage and would never give like you know Josh's messages. And finally, it did, and they hooked up. And Josh, you know, was you know when they were talking with Nick, and at this point, the chess club started to started was starting to implode. Um, the band there was a lot of like turmoil and in, in ter- internally, and it was just starting to fall apart at the seams, and it was really unfortunate. And so I basically, you know, once I found out that Josh was, you know, meet up, met up with Nick and, you know, this guy at Arden Studios, I was like, oh, man, I want to, you know, because Nick was like, do you have a band? And he's like, well, I have a, you know, my best friend's, a, you know, a bass player and he's been doing the Star Mice thing with me since the beginning. He's like, well, get yeah. him involved. So basically I jumped off the sinking ship, which was Chess Club, back into the Star Mice lifeboat. Yeah. Someone's chess club, you know, basically dwindled and fell apart. That was around the time where Star Micey got back into doing something because now Nick was in the picture. I remember meeting Nick for the first time, and (laughs) Nick, it's funny, because Nick met me, and I was, like, immediately, like, the next day or two, I was going on a family cruise to Alaska. So I remember Nick being like, you know, it's like, well, what are you doing, man? Let's hang out sometimes, like... Man, I would, but I'm going to Alaska tomorrow. And he was like, What? What? It's like, yeah, I'm going to Alaska for like a week, man. I'll be back in a week. Let's hang out then. And he was like, he tells us like, Man, this guy is really cool. He travels to Alaska all the time. It was like a family trip. So it was like it was planned. (laughs) It wasn't like this spur of the moment thing. It's like, oh dude, I'm going to Alaska. Peace. Yeah. Uh, Jeff just
2: woke up yesterday. He said to Alaska. Yeah, he's he's going to Alaska.
0: I don't know why he's doing it, but he's going. Yeah. So after I got back from Alaska I remember it was in June and in July yeah, it was in July or August Nick had, had brought us into a studio I forgot the name of the studio but it was ran by a guy named Brad Dunn who was Duck Dunn's uh, nephew the bass, the famous bass player from Booker T and the MGs and he had a studio that was uh, below uh, an office building over off of Poplar and it was a pretty cool studio and Nick had brought uh, myself, my myself, Josh, and I had brought Doug Walker from Chess Club, the keyboard player, in with us to do record the song "So Much Pain" yeah. that Josh had just recently started writing, and it was just it's just ENA, super easy. That's the one that's on the first album. That could yeah, write. that one. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the recorded version of that. Uh, where there is some kind of recorded version of that of so much pain of that version somewhere in the ether I have no idea where it's at but and that was the first time I ever met Curry Weber who would eventually become the guy that basically the meat and potatoes or mentor or the guy that would just bring help again bring Star Micey to where it would go so I met Curry Weber he was a, a professional recording engineer producer had a degree in it so did Nick so Nick and Curry were a team. They both worked at Ardent Studios, but yeah. we were. They wanted to cut, you know, this song in this studio, and we did. And Curry loved it. He was like, "This is great." Well, I was like, "We need to get you guys into Ardent." And it's like I never heard of Ardent Studios up until then, and I started doing research and saw like that Ardent Studios was like a legit recording studio mm-hmm. since the late '60s, and has recorded some of the biggest records that the world's ever known. And it's right here in our backyard in Memphis, right there on Madison Avenue. Yeah. And so once we met with Curry, you know, and got to know him, and we all instantly fell like head over heels, like friendship, like level a thousand, you know, with Curry and Nick. And we started telling Jerry, our old drummer, Star Micey, about this, you know, thing, and... He got, you know, Jerry was like, well, man, I want to come back and, you know, do some recording with you guys. And, you know, because I guess the band that he was with, like, it, he it had broken up, so. Yeah, stars in his eyes, right? He did. And, you know, then he, you know, came back with a tail between his legs and started playing with us again. So Nick and Curry, at this point, this is like, probably, I want to say August or September of 2008, had... Got us into Arden Studios after hours, where we're all, when all the big wigs went home, mm-hmm. and we were in Studio C. I've never been in a like Young Avenue Sound was the first legit studio I've ever been in, and that was like a very new studio. Yeah, Arden Studios is like something that you see in like like a movie. Yeah, it was the it and still is one of the most beautiful facilities I've ever been in. It was like everything was wood and teak. It was gorgeous. It was it was nuts like and being in there when you're like 23 24 years old is was like it's unbelievable. it was unbelievable and we and Curry and Nick had us all set up in Studio C it was like I remember walking in it was Josh myself Jerry was in the middle we each had our own headphone amps we each had our own microphone and everything was mic'd up uh-huh. perfectly and we were all you know got our levels and they just wanted us to knock out a bunch of songs and looked to pitch to Ardent to potentially record a record. So we're like, sure, let's do it. And we did ten or twelve songs live, just ran through them all. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter how rough it was. We did a few takes of each song, and and then that we thought that was it. But it was like I still have those recordings, and you know, it was so cool to hear us in like this setting, like this beautiful Studio C where which was built for ZZ Top for the record Eliminator. You know, that's like that studio. It's, it wow. was nuts. Yeah. And it was funny. It was like when we, I think it was like before, prior this recording session, that So Much Pain session I mentioned before, I think Nick had brought that song to the higher-ups at Ardent because they were revamping their secular label called, called Ardent Music that all the big star records came out on in the 70s. And so they were looking for new acts for the label. And, you know, the higher ups, they didn't really hear anything, hear anything, whatever. Yeah. And then when we came in and secretly recorded those, you know, 10, 12 songs, they were like, you know, they heard some of it. It's like, okay, well, we'll, 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 well, I'll tell you what, we'll record three songs. And if we like them, then we'll okay a record. So we set out to record an EP in November of 2008 with Ardent, and so this is like legit, you know, have like production on this, Mm -hmm. so it was myself, Jerry, Josh, and we uh, recorded the first three songs, which were Salvation Army Clothes, So Much Pain, and Carly, and Salvation Army Clothes was written about Josh's ex-girlfriend, So Much Pain was written about his brother, brother. Carly was written about my buddy Matt's ex-girlfriend, all like love songs or sad songs so we went in there we had three songs I I forgot how long it took I think it took like four or five days maybe maybe more I think we did like a song every few days like in the studio like we lived at Ardent and at the time they were like recording all these big acts all like Studio A was always booked up Studio B was always mixing there were all these you know big musicians, engineers, like just constantly going back and forth, yeah. back and forth. And it Rubbing was like elbows right. Yeah. And we were just in Studio C cutting our thing and we were just like just soaking it all in like a sponge. Just being in this building and like like kids in a candy store is like never experienced anything like it. It was just like outrageous. Yeah. So when we recorded so much or salvation army clothes, so much pain and uh Carly, you know, we like went all in. It's like we used all the equipment like We wanted to use the Wurlitzers, we wanted to use the organ, we wanted to use the Mellotron, we wanted to use all the different microphones and like all the weird like overdub stuff once we got all the rhythm tracks and, you know, we had guests, guest artists, we had Luther Dickinson record guitar on, the lead guitar on So Much Pain, he played Slide on So Much Pain because at the time I was painting his house and you know it was, and, but he was a really he really like star in Micy too, which is yeah. unreal because he's you know Luther Dickinson, you know North Mississippi all stars. yeah his father is Jim Dickinson. So he had him on there. He had Dave Cowser play acoustic on uh, Salvation Army clothes. Our friend Mickey Schmidt from Sweden sang backup vocals on Carly. and this session was co-produced by Nick and Curry. And so they tag team this thing so we were just like, Eating it all up, and recorded these songs, polished them up, and then we presented the songs to the higher ups at Ardent, that running the running label, and they flipped out. They loved it, and they they greenlighted the uh, the next you know ten songs, and that's what we did. So you know that was November of two thousand and eight. The next session was done, January of two thousand nine, and January February. And that was when we did um, I Am the One She Needs, New Beginning, and On Your Own. Again, got a budget uh, for recording. We hired a string section for um, On Your Own. We had Jonathan Kirksey and Jesse Munson and Bella Murphy. You know, people that played in the Memphis Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. Play to this, you know, to, he wrote a score to the song. Doug Walker from Chess Club was... You know, played on basically an entire record with us. He played all the key parts and wrote the string parts for that uh, that particular song. And it was funny because it was just like it was just Josh, myself, Doug Walker. I apologize, and Jerry Meadows were you know that was starting Mikey and Nick. I, unbeknownst to us, I didn't know that Nick was a guitar player. You know, I mean, I always heard him play stuff at like the singer songwriter, the bar stars nights on acoustic. But yeah. I had no idea he was a lead guitar player. And I remember, you know, he came. It was "I Am the One She Needs" or "My Beginning," one of those two. And he started writing guitar riffs on this, and we're like, "What the hell, dude?" It's Why like you've been holding, you've been holding back on this this entire time because Nick had promised himself that he would never be in a band again after previous, you know, several bands that he had been in that had just not worked out yeah like I mean and it's so funny because Nick you know and I'll get to this eventually but Nick myself Josh and Jeremy all traveled in the same circles when it came to like the scene back in the day where like the whole new metal scene like mm-hmm. they were all were all in bands that were like intertwined with each other playing with each other but, but not really running into each not, other yeah not really running into each other which is really weird. So, anyways, so once this happened, you know, we, you know, the, the second EP, the second batch of songs happened, and then, which which was great, you know, we started, you know, we were still playing some shows at that point. And then um, I think after the, uh, after we wrote, you know, the, the second batch of songs, recorded the second batch of songs, Jerry Meadows had quit on us again. <laughs> Maybe joined some other, band and that was like it it was like we're this is this is bullshit um, and we had the third batch of songs uh, ready to go we had it scheduled at the studio and no drummer and no drummer but it's funny because I mean I remember telling Jerry is like we forced him it's like as an obligation for him quitting on us is like you will record the drums for She's on Fire which is the very first song that Josh and I ever like like wrote together mm-hmm as like and that was the very first song that he played with us on it's like you are ob- i am obligating you to record drums for that song and then that's it and so we made him do that and so that was the last song that Jerry Meadows ever recorded with us drum wise and then you know and then i think for late at night we had paul taylor on drums and then on uh was it nelson we had jody stevens from big star play drums on that so the last two songs of the record we hired drummers out for or you know it was, Uh, late at night and Nelson so that session happened more guest artists Jody Stevens Rick Steff Paul Taylor so it was like a a who's who Memphis wise of like on this record yeah and it when it all came together it was a slick record I mean it sounds cool it sounded great and Ardent was going green lighted to do a, a release CD release and X amount of copies and you know we signed a contract with Ardent which would end up being a huge mistake in the long run, which I'm, I'm sure you heard about, and I'll get into that in a minute. So this is again, this is starting to end, you know, become the summer of 2008. Once all this was said and done, mm-hmm. so once once the recording aspects was done, then we had to mix. So we were just doing mixing and some more overdubs. Jerry's out of the picture. Picture. So now, like, and then Nick was you know, unofficially became a member of Star Sea during this recording session. And so we were mixed everything, got everything done, and you know we were, you know, and now we had to wait for the, the label to do their side, which was basically get the CD manufactured, you know, the artwork done, printed, um, and then like get the A and R side going. So the release of the record really didn't happen until uh, I think it was October of 2009, mm-hmm. and in September October 2009, we had the CD release show at Neil's music room and we made it a free event and there was like 400 people in that room and we wow. t- set up the entire room as a carnival so like we had like little carnival games that we uh, had put together the, the girl a really dear friend of, of ours that had met Josh during the Starbucks days of him working there her name was Karen Mulford and she was a, an a incredible is an incredible artist and like Josh became really good friends with her Another really eccentric artist in Memphis, and like I remember, like in the early days before we got hooked up with Artie, like she drew. Josh asked her to draw what she thought Star Micey was, and she drew it on a napkin. And she drew the very first thing she drew was that little guy, yeah. the Star Micey guy. And then the second thing she drew, actually got a tattoo of it, um, is this guy right here. Yeah. So she drew that guy. So that's the <laughs> second thing she drew of Star Mice. And so she became like Star Mice's artist like all the flyers we did, everything. It was all Karen's artwork. Yeah. And it was like so unique and so different and no no one had that artwork. Uh for the release show, she designed all these like different like little things like, you know, like bo- like a ring toss booth and like you paint your face or like you know a bunch of like carnival games and we dressed the stage up to look just like our album cover which was like all these clouds and fake grass or green grass and like it was legit i mean it was it was a whole thing and they it was the first you know our first record you know we did a release show and it was like such an incredible moment and that 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 point let me preface this real quick as you know when the, the CD was being made, when Jerry left, well, we didn't have a drummer. Yeah. So we started doing all this, like, three-piece stuff, just Nick, myself, and Josh, the three-piece percussion thing, which was not... We, were, we weren't wanting to do that. We got the stuff to be able to have to keep tempo and keep a beat while we were playing. And it just morphed into the three-piece foot percussion thing that, you know... Mumford and & Son and Avid Brothers would make, you know, and it's not, I'm not saying they saw this and were like, we're stealing that. But they made that thing famous. Right. So that was all out of necessity, not out of us being like, we want to do this because we don't want a drummer. It was like, no, we can't find a drummer because all the drummers we came across were Flakes. And so we need something to keep us going because I didn't want to backtrack. We, knew, we didn't want to backtrack. Right. So we started writing songs around this, this you know way of playing, playing. And in the time of like having this record come out that has a full band behind it. So it's really weird. And it was and it was just like the star of mycy like luck. it was that. It was just like always something. It's like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. the entire our entire career. <laughs> you know, good, bad, ugly, whatever. But as this was happening, it's like, well, we have a release show coming up. we need to do a full band thing so we hired. You know, Doug Walker came back and played keys. We hired Ryan Peel to play drums. But we had, you know, half the set was, like, three-piece percussion thing. Uh-huh. And then the other half was, like, the big band thing. So it was, like, this really unique show. And it went great. And, I was this during, like, the antics? Uh, this wasn't during the antics. The antics came, like, the flipping and all that yeah. stuff. That came a little bit a few years after. You know, about a year after. It was 2010,
2: 2011. And... Cut. Papa, can you hear me? Yeah. News and notes. If you haven't done so already, I would ask that you would rate, review, subscribe, and tell a friend. and Put it on your social media. And next time you're at the local Water Note, won't you tell somebody about the show? Woo! What a breath. Now, if you didn't know, I'd like to tell you right now, you can go to Brothers.com. Monsonandbrothers.com We have a special little place If you scroll right down And you'll see on the bottom right There will be Porch Talk podcast stuff Click on that link And you'll see the t-shirts and the mugs And the shoes and socks And uh, just everything we got going on over there So just go ahead and check that on out Now I'll give you a little hint Just cause uh, I'm a big fan of you Is uh, if you'll type in a promo code Porch Talk, all caps, all one word. That'll get you 25% off. How's that grab you? That's how much I love you. Look, you're getting a $20 shirt for 15 bucks now. Come on now. I got you back. All right, now moving on. Well, at the beginning of the show, you heard, I Can't Wait by Star Mice, And uh, had Cobb sit down and help me pick out the clothes. and. Uh, We're going to close out with a little who, what, when. Peace out.